Welcome to the ruins at the city of Ephesus, the first of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3. The ancient city of Ephesus exists now only in ruins, but in the first century, it was the most important economic and commercial center for all of Asia Minor. Ephesus was not only significant to the broader culture at this time, it was very important for early Christians as well, playing a vital role in the spread of the Christian movement. Once a bustling port city, Ephesus now sits three miles inland due to the silting by the Keister River, a reality that this city battled throughout its existence. Ephesus now sits in the shadow of the popular port city of Kushadasi, but in its day, Ephesus was known for being a great export city, moving goods from the entirety of Asia Minor to the rest of the Roman Empire. Since it was such a great export city, it also became a landing spot for Roman armies and dignitaries traveling throughout the region. In the first century, there was a major road here as well. The Roman road that ran throughout the city to the port was known as the Arcadian Way. It was 70 feet wide and lined with magnificent columns. Overall, because of the commerce and travel that is in this location on the Aegean Sea, it allowed Ephesus to be a very diverse city, full of people of many different backgrounds and cultures. It also enabled the city to become very wealthy, profiting from the trade of goods that came in and out of its harbor. At the time of the writing of the letter to the church here in Ephesus, Ephesus was home to an estimated 250,000 people, which made it the fourth largest known city in the ancient world, behind Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. Christianity claimed this city as important as well because it became a base operation for the Apostle Paul. Paul was an early church leader who was called to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world. He, of course, planted a church here in Ephesus to which he wrote the letter we know as Ephesians. He also used Ephesus and its worldwide connections as his home base while he planted churches all over the Mediterranean. Ephesus played a large role in impacting the whole region. Paul, once the pastor of the church of Ephesus, made an extraordinary impact in this region. We read about this in Acts 19.10, which says, all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it was out of this amazing city that the good news of the gospel spread throughout all of Asia Minor. There are a few very important pieces of background information that help us understand Jesus' message to the Christians at Ephesus. First, in a cultured and sophisticated city like Ephesus, the accumulation of knowledge was very important. Like many urban centers today, this metropolis was full of people who were learning and contributing to the depth of human knowledge in various disciplines like medicine and philosophy. There are even a medical school here. And this valuing of education is illustrated by the presence of the Library of Celsus. This ancient library housed 12,000 volumes and it's a testament to this city's commitment to intellectual growth and to learning. Obviously, the Christians in this city were part of this culture. So it's reasonable to assume that this church was comprised of some people who were well-read and intellectually capable. But their knowledge of the world didn't stop with their jobs or just curiosity about science. They valued wisdom and insight in their theological beliefs as well. In fact, Jesus even praises their ability to test and to discern the content of false teachers and to label that teaching as incorrect. 
They were able to, through intellectual nuance and theological sophistication, stand up against false teaching. They knew the truth. Their minds were full of correct content. So it's interesting that in his letter to them, Jesus corrects them and calls them to repent. They had worked to know truth, but something had changed over the years. They had all this knowledge, but they weren't living out a joyful and vibrant, love-filled life in Christ. What changed? What did they need to get back on track? The second key part of life here has to do with the idolatry throughout all the city. Not unlike the world we live in today, Ephesus was a place where people were far from the truth in their beliefs. The Christians here remained faithful in their beliefs, but that was no small task. One great example of this false worship is found at the remains of the Temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. This temple was an integral part of Ephesian society and culture. In this era, temples were built as tourist attractions designed to bring travelers in who would be impressed by the incredible structure of the building and be convinced of the greatness of that deity. The temple of Artemis was not just locally impressive. Today, it's considered to be one of the seven ancient wonders in the entire world. It was also known all over the Roman world as one of the single most magnificent buildings ever constructed. Clearly, the worship of Artemis was a huge part of everyday life in Ephesus. So much, in fact, that when the influence of Christianity began to spread through Paul's work in the city, people stopped worshiping Artemis. It caught the attention of the whole city. The book of Acts describes one incident in which local silversmiths who operated a powerful trade union and made their living by making idols and relics for Artemis worship, they were losing business as people turned to Christ. So they protested Paul's work and Christianity spread by starting a riot. Acts 19, 28 and 29 says, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. All the people rushed into the theater together. In the lecture hall of Tyrannius, thousands of people gathered and were chanting together about the glory and the greatness of their goddess, Artemis. Worshiping Artemis was not just a side project for a few religious Ephesians. It was assumed the standard for everyone who lived here. To not do so was obviously and offensively countercultural. So this is the culture in which the Christians at Ephesus were called to live out their faith. They were surrounded by a tide of false teaching, and yet somehow this church refused to embrace it. The final piece of background has to do with the local trash heap. Not exactly a lovely place. However, it was here that Christians in Ephesus originally developed a reputation for loving God and loving others. Often, if a family in Ephesus had a child that was not wanted, they would bring them here and leave them to die of exposure. Maybe they were severely handicapped, or maybe the mother gave birth to a daughter when the father wanted a son. This was openly accepted and practiced right here in Ephesus. But the Christians, out of a heart of love and adoption, took these abandoned children in and raised them. Likely, this is why the Ephesian church was so influential for a long time. No one could argue with this type of sacrificial love. However, over time, that practice began to fade. What could have caused them to turn from this practical extension of God's love to the world around them? 
Jesus addressed this reality and more in this letter to these ancient believers, a letter which speaks exactly to their specific needs, but also reaches through time with a piercing and relevant message that strikes the heart of our own fallings and struggles to our church. Seems to me that the practice stopped because the Christians here in Ephesus began to substitute faith and love with knowledge and wisdom. They had all the knowledge, but this is the piece that was missing. They knew a lot, but they didn't love others anymore. You see, knowledge and belief is never a substitute for love. This is why Jesus calls them to repent. They were to be lights in a world, and yet their faith had grown stale and inward focused. It's here that Jesus says, you started so well with compassion for others and the desire to help others know me. Where has that gone? So what about you? Have you replaced love for knowledge? Maybe you know all the right answers to all the hard questions, but you've forgotten that people matter more. That's exactly what happened to the Christians in Ephesus in this forgetful church. Have you ever received a special letter? I mean, a letter from someone who meant something to you. And when that letter was wrote, it was personalized for you specifically. Maybe it had a moment in your life that only you would know about. Or maybe there was an inside joke in there that only you would get. You see, letters in our culture are valuable because they have depth of meaning. They're special to us. You know, in my house, underneath our bed, is this antique circular box. And inside this box are all the letters, notes, and cards that my wife has received for the majority of her life. She's kept them. And in this box are letters from her mom and dad. There's letters from family friends and, and close friends. There's letters from me, her husband, there's also drawings and notes from Joel. Don't tell Ashley this, but I wrote most of those letters. <laughs> but what's interesting is if you were to just find this box and go through all of these letters, you probably wouldn't understand most of them. There would probably be jokes in there that you wouldn't get because they were personalized for my wife. They were made, they were written specifically for her. And today we start a brand new series called Seven, where Jesus does that through a man named John. He writes seven specific letters to seven different locations with seven different messages. But what is amazing is 2,000 years ago he did this, thousands of years ago, but they're still relevant to us today. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you'd love to follow along, you can use one of the Bibles we provide at all of our campuses. It's going to be on page 991. Revelation is the last book in your Bible. And as you're kind of weaving your way there, I want to welcome you to Northridge Church. Thanks for being here this morning. Whether you've been coming to Northridge for a long time or you're just a guest checking us out, thank you for being here. And whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're with us online, we're excited to have you. 
And I just want to take a moment and celebrate. I want to say a special welcome to our Henrietta campus because it's official, guys. You are with us. You're a campus. Today is your grand opening. Yeah. And so if you're joining us from our Henrietta campus, I just want to say whether you're serving or you're a guest here, thank you for being with us. We believe God's going to do some amazing things through the campus at Henrietta, and so we're honored to have you here this morning. And we're diving into this new series called Seven. And what we did three months ago, three months ago, our video team, myself and Aaron Hickson, we traveled to modern-day Turkey. And we visited every single church, all seven locations, to make this series come alive, for you to see the geography and what's taking place, to understand a little bit better of what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In fact, you probably heard in the background of those videos some crickets. And we wanted to make it come so alive that these crickets were in the background. Actually, they just wouldn't be quiet. We told them we were filming, but it's so hot there that they just scream all day long. And so we wanted this passage, these passages to come alive. And in the next seven weeks, we're going to visit every single letter in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're going to walk verse by verse, and we're going to look at specific churches and Jesus' message to those churches. But before we dive too far in, I want to kind of set the scene for you. I want you to get a little bit of a better background of what's taking place in Revelation chapter 1, because it sets the scene for Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You see, you got to understand that this book, Revelation, is written by a guy named John. And John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he's preaching the gospel, he's leading, he's living out the gospel with his life. And he actually gets exiled to an island called Patmos. It's on the coast of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea. In fact, we see this in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 where he says this. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so John is this pastor in this church at Ephesus, and he's sharing his faith. He's telling people about Jesus, and the Romans don't like it. The Roman rule was oppressing Christians in this area, and they kick him out. They send him, they exile him to this island of Patmos. Why? Because he was living out his faith. Because he was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It'd be kind of like this. Can you imagine? You're passionate in your neighborhood or your backyard, and you're telling everybody about Jesus, and the city of Rochester just says, we don't want to hear it anymore, and so they, they exile you to Canada. They just send you to a different country. That's exactly what happens to John. He's living out his faith, and he's exiled, and he's on this island called Patmos, and Jesus comes to him. Verse 10, it says this, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you will see and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So while John is exiled to this island, Jesus comes to him and he says, I, ha I want you to write seven letters to seven churches and I want you to show them what I see. And so we pick up the first church today. It's probably the most well-known church Probably the most popular, we have a book in the Bible written to this church. It's called Ephesians. It's the forgetful church or the church in Ephesus. And it picks up in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, where Jesus begins to speak. He says this. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And immediately you're like, wow, we are in Revelation, aren't we? 
Like, what in the world is going on? I mean, Jesus writes, like, here's seven stars and seven golden lampstands. Like, how in the world do you understand what is going on? And you will find in these seven letters that Jesus has some trends in the way he writes these letters. And the first one is this. At the beginning of all the letters, Jesus identifies himself. He lets that church that he's speaking to specifically, he says, this is who I am. And to Ephesus, he says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands in my right hand. So what are the seven stars? What are these symbols of? Well, actually, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 gives us the answer. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, you got to understand angels in the Bible just means messenger. That's what it means. It means messenger. So he's referring to the angels of the churches. He's talking about the pastor, the leader of that church. And then he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And what Jesus is saying to start to the church in Ephesus, he says, I'm the authority. I'm the one who holds the leaders or the messengers or the church. I'm the one who holds the churches in my hand. I'm the authority. I'm the boss. Do you realize that the lampstand is just a symbol for the church? Even for us as Northridge Church, we're called to be a lampstand. We're called to give light to the dark places in the world. That's what the picture of the church, it's found in a symbol of the lampstand. It's, hey, we're a church called to give light to a broken and dark world. And Jesus identifies himself. He says, I'm the one who holds every church and every pastor and every leader in my hand. But then he continues. He says two words that are so powerful. Verse 2, he says, I know. I know. And these words are really powerful because Jesus is saying, I can see what's going on. I can see. I know what's happening in my church. I know the bad. I know the ugly. And I know the good. And this would have rang loud and clear from their Savior where he says, I know what's taking place. It's almost like this. You know, have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? You know, it's a show that was popular a couple years ago where the premise of the show is this CEO of this massive company, he would leave his high-rise office and he would come down into the factory. He'd put a uniform on, disguise himself, and he would work with the people who actually did the work in his company. So he would come down from his high rise and he would disguise himself. He'd put the uniform on and he would work with the people who actually did things in the company, put things together. And over the course of the week, he'd build a relationship with them. He would be like a new hire and he would just work and he would see what was happening, the things that were good and the things that were broken in his company. And at the end of the week, he would reveal himself to these people and he would say, hey, I know. I know I see it with my own eyes. I see what's working and I see what's broken. And these two words, as Jesus is almost saying that exact same thing to his church, you'll see these words all throughout the seven letters. Jesus says, I know. I can see it. But he continues, he says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus, to this church, he starts out with the positive. He says, I know you've persevered. I know you've endured. Because 
Here, this church was under Roman oppression, and the Romans didn't really like Christianity, and so they were killing Christians. And Jesus says, hey, I know it's hard. I know you've lost friends who have lived out their faith. I know you've endured and persevered. He also says, I know that you've called out false apostles. I know you've stood true on my word, and you're hanging on to the beliefs that God's word says. You see, the the church in Ephesus was known for one major thing. One of their greatest strengths was their knowledge, their theology. They had deep, strong theology. They stood on God's word. In fact, there was a lot of false apostles and false teachers who tried to sneak into this church and teach false doctrine, but they stood true to God's word. But as Jesus is saying all these good things, it's almost as he's setting them up for something because their greatest strength was their knowledge. But it's like our lives. Often our greatest strength can become our greatest weakness. Often uh, the greatest gift that God gave to us to use gets distorted and turned. And it becomes not a strength, but actually it turns into a weakness. Let me give you an example in my life. You see, as a leader, one of my greatest gifts is I'm a visionary. I'm the guy that likes to dream about the future. I'm the one who's always pushing us. Let's go forward. Let's move. Come on. We can't stay here. We got to keep moving. I'm a visionary, so I'm always dreaming about my family and where God's calling to us next and what he wants us to do. I'm dreaming about for Northridge Church, like, God, where are you taking us? And it's one of my greatest strengths. But you know what's true is a lot of times it becomes a weakness in my life because I'm so busy in the future that I miss what God's doing in the present. I'm so busy dreaming about what God has next for us that I miss the things right in front of my face that he's doing right now. And that was the church in Ephesus. Their greatest strength was their knowledge. And God praises them for it. But then he says these words in verse 4. He says, yet. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forgotten what's most valuable. You see, you've been hanging on your knowledge, which is a good thing, but you've replaced it for the best thing. You see, the church in Ephesus, they loved knowledge more than they loved their Savior. They loved growing in in their walk with Christ so much that they just missed Christ altogether. And I think this is a warning for us as Christians. I think this is a warning that we should take heed to is, hey, I think a lot of us in the church today are guilty of this because we crave knowledge. We've been walking with God for 5, 10, 20, 30, 50, 70 years. And we crave something new, some deep theological truth that we haven't seen in the text. We crave every Sunday, like, give me something I've never heard before. And we crave knowledge so much. And what happens is, this pursuit of knowledge, we forget the very thing God called us to do. And this is a warning for us as Christians who've been walking with God is, hey, we want new stuff. We want new information. But God's like, why don't you just do what I've already called you to? And the church in Ephesus, they loved knowledge so much they they missed out on the most important piece, Jesus. And this is true for us as we walk with Jesus. We become numb. Because when our faith grows old, our hearts can become cold. When we walk with Jesus in this this pursuit of walking with Jesus, our, our hearts become numb to what God is doing. 
Because we've heard the gospel like a thousand times. We know the story inside and out. Like we've heard it over and over again. We can like close our eyes, sit down and recite the gospel. And so we've just become numb to this very story that redeemed us. The very story that saved us from our sin. We've just become numb to it. And so we watch a, a baptism video and it doesn't really move us anymore because we've seen hundreds of them. That's yeah, just another story. You know, no big deal, right? We watch, we watch someone accept Christ as their personal Savior, and we don't really get that excited anymore because we've seen it over and over again. Because when our, heart, when our faith grows old, our hearts just become like rocks. They become cold to what God is doing around us. I want to take you back to that moment. Do you remember that moment where you first said yes to Jesus? For some of you, that was like 60 years ago. 50 years, 20 years ago, maybe it was five years ago, where you made Christ the leader of your life, where you surrendered to him. I want you to go back to that moment where you said yes to Jesus and you were so passionate about Jesus that you didn't care what your friends thought. You didn't care. You would just tell everybody about Jesus because you were so radically in love with what Jesus did for you. Do you remember that moment? And over the course of life, it's faded and it's faded and we become numb to it. It's kind of like that song. Remember that first worship song that you heard that God spoke directly to you? I mean, it was like your heart moved. It became alive. It was like God wrote it specifically for you. Maybe it was the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And when we first heard that song, it was like, holy smokes, it moved us. But now it's just a song that gets played over and over again. It doesn't even move us anymore. In fact, we just kind of skip past it because we've heard it so many times. Or maybe it's a worship song that you love, that you used to love, but now it's just kind of overplayed. And as we walk with Jesus, the church in Ephesus gives us a warning. As we walk with Jesus, it's really easy to become numb to what God is doing. It's easy to become numb because we crave knowledge and we miss out on Jesus. And maybe you find yourself there. Maybe you're on that path. Or maybe you're not sure. Here's a great question to ask yourself to really measure this. Do I do blank because you have to or because you get to? Do I read God's word because it's what every good Christian does? It's what I'm supposed to do. I check the box. Or do I read God's word because I am so madly in love with Jesus that I can't get enough of him? Do you wake up at 5 a.m. to do portable church because we need you? Because we can't do it without you? Or do you do it because you get to play a part in what God is doing to make more and better disciples here in Rochester City? Do you serve in our kids' ministry because we begged you to fill a hole? Because we need you? Or do you do it because you get to play an active role in building the foundation of a little kid's life and his foundation on Jesus? Do you do it because you get to or because you have to? Because, you know, as Christians, we're really good at checking all the boxes. You know, I, I read my Bible, and I go to church, and I go to community group, and I pray. And we look the part. But we miss the most important thing. That was the church in Ephesus. They looked really good. Their facade was gorgeous. But when you stepped into the house, it was broken and missing the most important piece. And I think we have to realize we can do all the right things but still miss out on the most important thing. 
We can do all the right things. We can read our Bible. We can spend time in God's word. We can pray. We can show up at community group. We can come to church every weekend and still miss out on Jesus. Because what we do is we replace the best thing with good things. And we pat ourselves on the back and we say we're a good Christian, but we miss out on Jesus. Do you want to know what made the church in Ephesus so popular? You see, the church in Ephesus was so popular because they loved radically. What grew the church in Ephesus was what was happening is because of the Roman influence in Ephesus, there were kids being born and the dad wanted a girl. So they had a boy. And so what they would do with that little baby is they would throw it on the street. If anybody had a physical handicap or a mental handicap, they would take that person and they would just deem them as unworthy and they would throw them on the street and say, hope you make it, who cares? That was the world they lived in. What the church in Ephesus was doing is they were showing a radical type of love and they would take those babies and they would take those handicapped people and they would bring them in and they would provide them. They would show the love of Jesus Christ to a broken and lost world and people were seeing it from the outside. Romans were seeing it from the outside and they're saying, man, that type of love, if Jesus loves like that, I want a part of him. I want a piece of him. But somewhere along the way, they replaced love for knowledge. They thought, man, if we just know all the right answers, maybe people would know Jesus, but they forgot how to love. And scripture says, this is what happens to us. First Corinthians 13, it says, it speaks right to this. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move the mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all, the possess- all my possessions to the poor and give over my body for hardship that I might boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And this is what this church missed. They missed love. They replaced it for something different. And maybe some of you are at Northridge Church today. You're checking out church, but you've been wounded by the church. You've been going to a church that didn't know how to love, and you've been scarred by it. And I want to tell you today, that's why we don't place our faith in a person. That's why we don't put our faith in people, because at the end of the day, people let us down. That's why we place our faith in Jesus, because he will never let us down. His love will always be perfect and flawless, and he will always love you, whether you do good or bad. He'll always be there for you. But here's the result. Jesus says, can, he says this, he says, you've lost your first love. And here's the result, verse 5, he says, consider how far you've fallen. Consider how far you've fallen. You see, these words were personal. These words spoke to a geographic problem in Ephesus that they heard loud and clear. You see, in Ephesus, Ephesus was on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It was perfectly set up for trade for ships to come in, and it, it built a great economy in Ephesus. It was a rich city because of this port, it, this port. But what was happening is the Keister River was pushing so much dirt into Ephesus, it was causing Ephesus to lose that port. And these words are a reference, a subtle reference to the geography, but really they were calling out the spiritual condition of this church. He says, consider how far you've fallen away. In fact, I want to show you what I mean. Check this out. Now, what about us? 
It's possible that the statement that Jesus makes to these Ephesian believers, see how far you've fallen, is a subtle reference to the silting problem at Ephesus. The Keister River brought so much dirt downstream into the harbor that it was causing the harbor to fill and the city to move back away from the Aegean Sea. In those days, they had developed a dredging system so that the harbor remained at Ephesus. But in the years since then, when people stopped dredging the harbor, it filled with dirt, and eventually Ephesus was three miles inland. They eventually allowed themselves to lose their connection to the harbor and its trade possibilities. This is a compelling picture of what Jesus was communicating to the church at Ephesus. He was telling them to dredge the harbor of their hearts in order to remove the dirt that was pushing them away from the kingdom and its mission. The Ephesian Christians had stopped caring about the fact that others were still far from God and destined for hell. So how about you? Is it time to dredge out the harbor of your heart and get back to a faith that you started with? What's causing your faith to drift? Northridge Church, it's time to remove all distractions and the pools of our life and get our focus back on our relationship with our Savior. You see, I think the question that we all have to answer is have we lost our first love? Are those words ringing true in our life right now? How far have you fallen? Has your faith drifted away from Jesus? You see, it happens in our world today. This message is relevant to us in 2017. In fact, I want to show you what this looks like in our life today. How far have you fallen? How far have you drifted? I want to take you back. I want to take you back to that moment, that moment where you first embraced Jesus as your Savior, where you said, God, I'm broken, and I can't fix my problem. I need you. And you made Christ the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. You had a relationship with Jesus, that first moment where you said yes to God. And you guys were close. I mean, you were so in love with your Savior. You were so passionate about what God did in your life that you would tell anybody and everybody. You went to work and school and you interacted with people all the time and you weren't ashamed to tell them about God because of what he did for you. You loved him. There was intimacy in your relationship. You couldn't get enough of him. You didn't read his word because you had to. You read his word because it became alive in your life. He was your best friend, the person you turned to when life got hard and difficult. You and God were close. But then over life, something happened. You didn't mean for it to happen. It's not even like you, you chose for it to happen. But you started taking good things and replacing them with the best thing. Maybe it started with work. You know, your, your boss asked you to pick up a couple extra shifts at work. You had that promotion you were going for. And you had to work really hard. And this is a good thing. You got you to work for your family. You got to provide for your family. And so you took 
your shift, you just shifted a little bit and you focused on work, but it was okay because God was still close. Or maybe it was your spouse. You know, your marriage got a little bit rocky and you had to take care of it. You had to step in and there was fights and you know, you were like, God, I got to fix this. I got to work on this. And so you shifted your attention to your husband or your spouse. Or maybe it was your kids. Man, they got schedules, they got sports, homework, and man, it's crazy and busy. And you know, all your kids, you got to chase them around and help them with school. And, and, and you know, it was all right because you could still reach God. He was still close enough that you could get a hold of him when you needed him. But you know, life kept going. And then it was your friends, you know, you're building relationships, you gotta, you gotta make friends and invest in people, and then it was the sports you like, you know, it's, it's the, the football game, it's, the, it's the, the Bills game, I would recommend watching the Cowboys, but you can watch the Bills if you want to, but it's those things that you watch, and you know, life is continuing to go, and it's your hobbies, I mean, it's only warm in Rochester for so long, I gotta get my golf game in, I gotta get the football games in, I gotta go outside with my kids, and it's these things that are happening. Or maybe it's, you know, it's shopping or it's your future. You know, I'm in college and so, you know, I, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm going to graduate in like six months and I need a future. I got to find out what I want or, you know what, maybe it's school. Or maybe it's the pursuit of love. You know, I just need to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright and I, I got school and homework and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm a senior this year. I'm going to college or maybe it's your finances. Things are getting a little rocky. I got to pay my bills and they're overwhelming me. And, you know, or maybe it's success. You know, I just started a new business and I got to focus on that. And I, and all these things are really good things. Your wife is a good thing. Your job is a good thing. And all these things are really good and they, they, they have a tendency to fill our minds and our focus and steal. They're good things that take away from the best thing. And you get to this point in your life where it's so busy and it's so chaotic and you look back at God and you're like, where'd you go? How come I can't feel you anymore, God? Are you listening to me, God? Do you care because I can't hear you anymore? And you look back to God and you say, where did you go? And Jesus looks at you and he says these words. He says, I never moved. I never moved. This is what these words mean in Revelation chapter two, verse five, where he says, consider how far you've fallen. The church in Ephesus loved knowledge so much. It was a good thing, but it pushed them away from the best thing. And I would bet a lot of us find ourselves right here. Right here. And we fell in love with Jesus, and we were so passionate about Jesus, but then life happened. And it wasn't really bad things. It was good things that God gave us, but they took the place of the most important thing. And we've drifted. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. And I would tell you it's not good things in the way, it's your sin. The Bible says we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And I know it's your sin because I was there once. 
I was broken and I needed something greater and there was this giant chasm in my way. It was my sin and there was nothing I could do to fix it. But yet God stepped in and he gave us a son who died on the cross and he crashed down that barrier so we could have a relationship with him. And all you got to do is say yes to Jesus. Maybe today is the day where you say yes to Jesus for the first time and you don't let your sin held you captive anymore, but you say yes to a God who freed you from it. But for a lot of us, we know Jesus, but we've craved good things more than we've craved him. But what I love about God is he doesn't leave us here. Although we drift and although we, we fall away, God doesn't say, hey, see you later. He says, let's get back to where it was. In fact, this is what he said to the church in Revelation. Ephesus says this, he says, repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. He says, come back. Come back to like it was when you first said yes. Just come back. I know you drifted, but I desire to go back to when you were passionate about me, where you loved me, and I was first in your life. So how do we make that jump? I don't know about you, but I can run and try to jump over these things, but it probably wouldn't be good. And we get so chaotic, like, how do I, this is too much, I don't know what to do, and so we don't do anything. We just leave all these things here. The first thing I would tell you to do is to reflect, to reflect, to examine your life today, to really take a gut check and say, what are the things, the good things in my life that are keeping me from the best thing? To do what David did in Psalms chapter 139, verse 23, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And maybe today's that day, right now's that moment where you take 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and you say, God, what's in the way? What's causing me to drift? But then secondly, Jesus said these words. He says, repent. Now, repentance is a churchy word. We don't use that word in our culture very often. But what repentance is, is it means if you're going this way, if you're headed this direction, repentance is to say, God, no more. I'm turning back and I'm coming home. To turn away and to do a 180, that's what repentance means. It means to clear a path. And so at all of our locations, our bands are going to sing a song. And I would challenge you as an individual to really take a good look at your life, to reflect and say, God, what is in my way? What is causing this drift in my life? To reflect and then secondly, to repent. To take a moment and say, God, will you forgive me for the things that are getting in the way? And may today I clear a path to come back to you.
offers us righteousness. Maybe you find yourself today on this side of that relationship where your faith has drifted. Jesus says, reflect, repent. And then he says to us, return to the way it was at first. Return to your first love. And I showed you how we drift, but today, the more exciting news is I want to show you how you get back to the way it was at first. You see, these are good things. And so that doesn't mean we get rid of them. It doesn't mean we get rid of our spouse because it's her fault, or we get rid of our job and we go home today and we say, my my, my communicator told me to, to quit my job. But here's what we do. We return. And so we recognize that no amount of money No school, no pursuit of love, 
No future is important as my relationship with Jesus. No amount of hobbies or friends or sports are as important to me as my relationship as with Jesus. No amount of pursuit of love or kids. My kids, I love my kids, but they pale in comparison to my relationship with Jesus. Uh, my spouse is important to me, but she's got to move out of the way. My work, my job has to move out of the way so I can get back to the way it was at first. When I loved my Savior more than I love anything. And what's amazing, what's amazing is when you clear a path, when you clear the path and you get back to this, God works through you to make you the best husband you can be. God works through you to make you the best employee or boss you can be. God gives you wisdom when you pursue your future spouse. God gives you wisdom with your friends. You see, when we get back to this, these things have a tendency of working themselves out because Jesus is communicating to us. And this is the promise he gives if we return. This is what he says to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He says, whoever hears, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. What he's saying is don't stay where you were. Continue coming back. And he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He takes us back to the Garden of Eden, the moment where sin entered the picture where we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, hey, you can hang on to this promise that one day, one day, you'll get to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You can hang on to the hope of heaven because you've made this commitment. So may we, this week and today, figure out what's in the way. May we ask for forgiveness, and may we return to the way it was at first. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us enough to write personalized letters to us. Your word is a letter to all of us saying how much you love us and what you did for us. And so God, I pray for all those people who have drifted that you would bring them back to that close intimacy with you that there wouldn't be anything that gets in the way, that we'd become a church that comes back, that the only thing that compares to you is nothing. That there is nothing that compares to our love for our Savior. Help us to come back, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.